Our scripture reading comes from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you, that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word and patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to worship. We thank you for your word that speaks uh, the words of life uh, into our hearts and into our lives. So we pray that that you would speak to us, God, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I don't know about you when when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, I grew up with a pretty uh, active imagination. Uh, I lived in a in a neighborhood where everyone had uh, about five or six acres to their property, and we were friends with all our neighbors. So one of the cool things that I got to do when I was a kid is I would get to wander for hours uh, all throughout the neighborhood. I would wander in our woods and on our trails. I'd, I'd sneak into our neighbors' woods and their trails, and I'd just roam for hours and hours till I became hungry. And then when I became hungry, I would just come home. The one thing about my neighborhood, though, is there were no other kids in our neighborhood. So I got to go on all of these journeys and all of these wanderings all throughout the neighborhood all by myself. So because of that, I compensated and I developed a rather large imagination when I was a kid. So every stick that I found in the woods became, you know, some sort of gun that I would use in some World War II battle that I was fighting. I remember very specifically, uh, I had one neighbor that had one of those beautiful large willow trees that had the the branches on it. And I would go up and I'd snap off one of those branches. And immediately I was Indiana Jones with my whip going out on some sort of adventure uh, in the neighborhood. So because of that, my neighbors probably all thought I was a weird kid who was crazy roaming around the neighborhood with an active imagination. But it was one of the things that I had really developed as a child. Well, some authors have said that the book of Revelation that we've been looking at is best understood by children. Now, why would they say that? Well, I think they say that because children, because of the nature of who they are, have developed really strong and powerful senses of imagination. 
And imagination is actually really required in order to read and to understand the book of Revelation, this last book in the Bible. The book starts with an incredibly imaginative picture of Jesus Christ himself who is reigning in heaven. And then it moves on to another section in chapters 2 and 3 that talk about letters. These were seven letters that were written to seven different ancient churches uh, throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey or ancient Asia Minor. They were all younger churches, just like us, that were facing unique challenges because they lived in urban contexts. They were all sorting through what it meant to be a church, especially be a church in an urban context. And as we've looked over these letters over the past couple weeks, we've seen that they, that they show us marks. Marks about what it means to be a church or what are characteristics or distinctiveness about what it means to be a church, a community of faith. The first letter showed us that love has to be an integral part of what it means to be a church. The second letter to the church at Smyrna showed us that persecution is part of what it means to be a church as well. We saw in the letter to the church at Pergamum that that a church is called to center itself on the truth, to center itself on the truth of the gospel. And there's an incredible temptation to stray away from that truth. We also saw in the letter to the church at Thyatira that it's not just good enough to, to center ourselves on the truth, but we also have to speak truth into the lives of one another because we all have blind spots. If you were with us last week, we saw that authenticity has to be the mark of the church as well. Well, as we come to the letter this week, we observe a letter that was written to the church of Philadelphia. Now, it's not the modern Philadelphia that's just two hours up the road, but an ancient city also with the name of Philadelphia that was in the area of Asia Minor. It was a very proud city. It, was, it prided itself on its virtue of, of loyalty. It was very significant in the, the commercial trade of the ancient world. In fact, it was known to be uh, the gateway city that would lead into the, the commercial trade of the East. Because of that, it was a, it was a very proper, uh, prosperous and very vibrant city. So it was a place that you really wanted to live in the ancient world, except for one thing. There was one really bad thing about living in the city of Philadelphia, one hitch in the plan, and that was it was subject to regular natural disasters in the form of earthquakes. It was a city known to be frequented by earthquakes. And in fact, history tells us that in AD 17, an earthquake that was so massive came and it literally decimated the entire city of Philadelphia. So when it receives this letter, it is a city that had just really rebuilt itself from a catastrophic earthquake. Now, as we've looked at these letters, we've noticed that most of them involve four things. They involve an encouragement. They involve some sort of correction. They involve an instruction and they involve a promise that Jesus has for these ancient churches. But this letter is unique. It's like the letter to the church at Smyrna in the fact that it gives no correction at all to this ancient church. 
It's a letter of unqualified praise and encouragement for the church in Philadelphia. And as we look at this letter, we see a few things about what it means to be a person of faith and ultimately what it means to be a community of faith as well. And the first thing we see is that weakness or humility really is the path to life. Weakness or humility is the path to life. It says this in the second half of verse 8. It says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. David Brooks, who's an author, uh, tells a story about one day on a Sunday evening where he was driving home from work. And uh, he was listening to NPR, and uh, one of the, the things that NPR from time to time does, especially on Sunday evenings, is they play old broadcasts from long ago. And they were doing that this night when he was listening, and he heard a broadcast from 1945 uh, that was a kind of a celebration broadcast after the end of World War II. It was two days uh, really after the end of World War II. So when he, when he heard this radio broadcast was coming on, he was intrigued. But as he listened to it, he was really surprised by the character of this radio broadcast. He expected it to be a, a bunch of Americans coming on the radio, kind of puffing out their chests and, and celebrating the fact that they had gained victory in World War II. But he said instead, the broadcast was very different than what he expected. He said, instead, it had the character of very somber humility. You see, those that were celebrating at this point had experienced lots of tragedy in World War II. They've experienced lots of lives that were lost, and they had just witnessed the dropping of uh, the atom bomb in Japan. And all of that served, instead of arrogance, it served to promote a somber humility in the wake of such an incredible victory. He said he was so intrigued by the radio program, he, he got home early and he had to sit in his car to listen to the end of it because he was so intrigued by it. And then he said when the story was over, he got out of his car, he went into the house and he flipped on the TV to watch Sunday night football. And he immediately observed a running back from, whoever, from whatever team was playing that night get a, a two-yard gain in a football game, and then launch into incredibly uh, uh, vivid celebration because they had just gained two yards in a football game. And he writes that the contrast between the two things could never have been more stark in his own mind. You see, what Jesus says in this letter is he says that this church that he is writing to has very little power. This church had been subject to all sorts of intense persecution from all sorts of directions, especially from uh, the hostile Jews that were also in the city of Philadelphia. In fact, Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. He doesn't mince any words here. He says that this church had been subject to all sorts of, of various trials. We don't know the ins and outs of what all those trials were, but they were subject to them. Most likely, this church had experienced losing everything, losing loved ones, losing homes in the wake of severe earthquakes that had plagued the city throughout its history, earthquakes that must have seemed senseless to them. 
They must have felt helplessly subjected to multiple forces that tended to to work against them in unique ways, in ways that they were unable to control. They were a small church, they were a weak church, and they knew it. They knew that they were poor. They knew that they were helpless or seemingly helpless in the ancient world. But what was beautiful about it is they didn't try to hide their weakness. They knew it, they embraced it, and they allowed their weakness to provide them with a robust sense of humility when it came to the world. So Jesus celebrates this about them. And he encourages them in their weakness and he promises them in spite of their weakness that he will preserve and give them life. It reminds us that that humility or weakness really is the path to life. But there's really two sides of that coin. If humility is the path to life, if humility and weakness is the path to life, then the converse must be true as well. And that is that pride... Pride destroys life. One of my favorite things to do uh, at my house, especially during the springtime, is to sit on my back porch in the morning and to uh, drink coffee and just think about the day. And I especially love it in in the spring because I get to to watch the kind of flowers uh, bloom uh, in our backyard and observe them growing all throughout the spring. And I noticed that that one uh, particular plant in our yard this week uh, is getting ready to bloom. And it's a flower that has always bothered me for as long as I have looked at it. And, and my wife is laughing because she knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because one day I asked her, What's, what is the name of this flower that blooms in our backyard? And she says, well, it's called a peonies plant. And the peonies plant has bothered me ever since I have observed it because I've never really understood this flower. Because this flower blooms every spring. It, it, it grows really fast and it blooms. And when it blooms, it gets this wide flower, about this big, this wide flower to it. But as soon as it's in the apex of blooming, it then becomes too heavy for the stem to hold the flower. So immediately the stem bends over, which ends up killing the peonies plant. It steals all of the life away from this plant. Well, if you were with us last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Sardis. And Sardis's issue was actually opposite of the, of, of the virtue of the church at Philadelphia. The church at Sardis had become so impressed with itself that its head got too big for its own britches. It had become prideful. It had become top heavy. So Jesus had to come and say to this church, wake up. You are about to die in your pride because pride has a way of stealing away life. I can remember a time in my life where where God had to send me a very similar wake-up call in my life when he opened my eyes to to the own pride that my own pride that exists in my own heart. I can remember very distinctively I was in college and uh, I was at a Borders bookstore. Back then bookstores were really popular and I was a weird college kid that liked to hang out in bookstores. 
And I can remember one specific night I was uh, spending some time at a Borders bookstore and I was just kind of roaming around the store. And uh, uh, while I was there, I picked up uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. If you know me at all, you know I talk about this book all the time because it's incredibly influenced my life. But at that point, I had never read that book before. And can I, I can remember sitting in the Borders bookstore and picking that book off the shelf and starting to read. And I was intrigued by one chapter that was called The Great Sin. And it was a chapter that was all about pride. And probably when I came to that chapter, I, I, I said, well, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to read this because I know a lot of prideful people in my life. And uh, maybe I can get some tools by reading this chapter to help these other people with their pride that exists in my life. They really annoy me, so I want to try to help them. And then I can remember coming to this particular passage. It said this, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. You see, I remember as clear as if it was yesterday the impact that these words had on even my own heart. I remember reading the rest of the chapter, which was only a few pages short, and feeling like I was coming undone on the inside as I read this chapter on pride. Because at that moment, God was opening my eyes to how my own pride had sucked the life out of all the relationships that existed in my life. And that how my own pride was actually sucking the life out of my relationship with God himself. You see, our pride that we are all subject to makes us believe that we are self-sufficient. It keeps us from realizing just how much we need one another and ultimately just how much we need God himself. You see, a cold drink doesn't look very necessary unless we first understand just how thirsty we are. Jesus himself says, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give that person drink. And that drink will be a stream of living water that gives life all throughout eternity. But in our pride, we never really recognize just how thirsty we are. And if we never realize just how thirsty we are, then we will never experience the life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. You see, only when we come to Jesus recognizing our need, recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, or even our spiritual thirst, only when we come to him recognizing those things do we truly find life. Because pride destroys life, but humility brings it. So Jesus commends this church for its weakness. He commends this church for its humility, but then he gives them a very practical instruction. And that is, he calls them to patiently endure. To patiently endure. It says this in verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have 
so that no one seizes your crown. You see, the church at Philadelphia was told to patiently endure the trials that life brings, to hold fast in the midst of persecution and difficulty that life had brought their way and life will continue to bring their way. But the key to endurance with patience that Jesus is talking about here, the key to endurance with patience is facing the trials and difficulty that life brings with humility rather than trying to face them with pride. You see, often when you and I are faced with all sorts of challenges and trials in life, we try to uh, coach ourselves. It's like there's this inner coach inside of us that begins to speak, and we remind ourselves of our own strengths and our own abilities. We say to ourselves, I can handle this challenge. I can handle this struggle. I've got the smarts and the intellect to be able to tackle this challenge in front of me. In fact, I've handled tough, tougher things than this before, so I can handle this. But what Christ does is he encourages this church to tackle hardships, yes, but not to tackle them with pride or with a sense of their own ability, but instead to tackle them in light of their weaknesses, in light of their humility. Because the gospel This life-giving message we talk about, this gospel at its core tells us that we find life in Christ when we humble ourselves. When we see our desperate need for him and cling to him in faith. In fact, it's often our pride that keeps us from coming to Christ. Most of the people that we know in our lives, the thing that gets in the way of them knowing Christ is often their very own pride. Pride in our own abilities that keeps us from seeing our desperate thirst, that keeps us from seeing our need from him. But when we are able to humble ourselves, then we experience, we find life in Christ. But we are mistaken if we think that humility is only the entrance into the faith. Many people think that that I I need to humble myself and, and then I'll enter into this life of faith. But you're mistaken if you think that's only the beginning. Instead, humility is really the whole life of faith from start to finish. It is daily recognizing our weakness and our need for Jesus Christ. It's refusing to be deluded into thinking that we can handle life on our own or with our own abilities. The life of faith is a life of daily recognizing our weaknesses and our need. It is a life of humility. And it's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. It's pretty countercultural, isn't it? To boast in our weaknesses. Paul later goes to talk about an affliction that he suffered in his life. He asked God to take that affliction away and God said to him, no, I'm not going to take that affliction away. Paul goes on and says, but Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, you and I are called to patiently endure in our weaknesses, boasting in our weaknesses rather than in our strengths. There's a popular author out there whose, whose name is Donald Miller, and we can talk a lot about Donald Miller. He's written a lot of books that are out there. Uh, but the book that made him really popular was a book that was called um, uh, Blue Like Jazz. I think they actually made a movie out of Blue Like Jazz at some point. Uh, don't watch the movie. Read the book. Books are always better than the movies, right? Uh, but he wrote a very popular book called Blue Like Jazz. And uh, he told a story in that book that I've always loved ever since, I, that, since I've read it. And the story goes, he was, uh, he was on campus at Reed College. I forget whether he was a student or not. But he was on campus at Reed College in, in Portland, Oregon, and uh, he, he had discovered Christ himself and was a part of a community of believers that had discovered Christ as well and had a heart for sharing Christ with, with those who were on campus. So they got together and they thought about how might we strategically share Christ with those people that were in our campus. And they came up with a really unorthodox idea. And they said, let's go in the middle of campus and set up a confession booth. And that's what they did. They went in the center of campus. They set up a confession booth and they put a sign on it that said, come and confess your sins. And what happened is many students would come to this confession booth and they'd get ready to start confessing their sins to one of these other students. And then the other student would stop them and they'd say, no, 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 no. This isn't an opportunity for you to confess your sins. This is an opportunity for us to confess our sins to you. You see, what they understood in that story is that the Christian life is a path of humility. It's a path of boasting of our weaknesses. It's a path where Christians set up a booth on a secular campus in order to confess their sins to others, to lead through weakness. If they patiently endure, Jesus offers them a promise. The promise is in verse 12. It says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never, how, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. As we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus offers us lots and lots of pictures. Lots and lots of symbols that exemplify for us what it means to live in a relationship with Christ, what it means to be a community of faith. And he does that. He offers several pictures in this promise. The first picture he says is he tells this church that, that he will make them a pillar in the temple of God. You see, this is a picture of the stability of what comes from knowing him, from knowing Christ. Even though the, the ground may be shaking underneath our feet, and it literally was shaking under the feet of the church in Philadelphia, they can find their eternal stability and their grounding in a deep and intimate relationship with God himself. The other picture talks about how Jesus will write for them a new name, 
This is a picture of ownership. It's a picture of intimate care that is offered to us, to you and I, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a picture of our citizenship that is grounded for us in heaven. So though the world may be against us and hostile to us, Christ is ours and we are his. But the greatest picture of really this entire letter of the book of Revelation is really the picture of Jesus Christ himself. We know from the Gospels that that Jesus himself was vigorously opposed and persecuted by forces outside of himself. We know from the Gospel that the Jews hated him and they conspired to have him arrested. They had him uh, accused falsely. They had him beaten. They had him spit upon And ultimately, they had him hung on the cross in order to be executed. In that moment, Jesus could have uh, marshaled all of his strength. He could have responded to this in strength and power. He could have called down his angels to rescue him from the cross. He had all the power of God himself at his fingertips. But instead, he willingly chose weakness. He chose to allow himself to be sacrificed so that you and I could experience life. Philippians vividly tells us this. It commands us to have the same mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the gift of life is offered to you and to I because of the weakness of Jesus Christ himself. It reminds us that the path of life is not only through the weakness of Jesus, but it's also in humbling ourselves and in recognizing our need and clinging to Christ instead in faith. And when we do that, it births us into a life that ought to be characterized not by pride, but ultimately by humility. All of this is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are reminded by the gospel that it is the the only true path that really brings life and life eternal. There's this beautiful little verse that's easy to miss, really just a phrase in in this letter that's hidden in verse 9. Where Jesus essentially says, all the world, at the end, all the world will know that I have loved you. You see, Jesus no longer needs to boast in his weakness. He walked down that road. He walked the path of weakness uh, in our path. Instead, now he boasts about us. Like a proud father likes to talk about their son, the God of the universe himself, boasts through all of eternity about just how much 
he loves you. That can be true of you if you humble yourself and accept his free gift of the gospel. And when you do, you will find life.